River City Church, we have a vision statement. It's, uh, it's, it might be in the bulletin there. It's uh, every disciple making disciples. So if I was to summarize to somebody like, what's your church all about? Well, we are simply a group of people that have been changed by God's amazing grace that he's shown to us in the gospel. So, and, and our goal is not just to be followers of Christ, but we want to be followers of Christ to try to make other followers of Christ. So every disciple of Christ making other disciples. And I've had people, especially people that are new to the faith or people that are new to River City Church, say, well, I, I am following Christ. Does that make me a disciple? Which I say, yes, that's, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ, is you're a disciple, right? Uh, it means the same thing. So I had somebody say to me, well, I don't know how to make a disciple. What does that mean? Like, am I doing a good job? Am I doing this right? I've had this conversation a lot of times. And I think it's a great, great question, right? If I say this is what we're all about, you should say, well, how do you do that? What does that look like? What does that mean? Am I doing it? Because I want to do it. I had somebody tell me, that. I want to do this. I know I'm called to do this, but I'm new to following Christ, so how do I do this? And my response to somebody, and this is kind of my response when it comes to evangelism in general, is if you, or discipleship in general, is if you are trying to help another person take a step closer to Jesus, then that's what you're supposed to be doing, right? That's what discipleship is all about. That is, means you're, so if they don't know Christ, that's called evangelism. You're helping to make a disciple. But if they do know Christ, that is helping them mature in Christ. You're helping another person get closer to Jesus Christ. And I've had a lot of people say, well, how do I do a better job at sharing my faith with others? Because they know what it means to be a Christian, but they aren't sure if they do a very good job at articulating it. Or they think they can't do a good job at articulating it. So what a lot of people think is, you know what, I, instead of just messing things up, I'll just keep my mouth shut. Right? That's what we do. We just say, you know, better to be thought of a fool than to open one's mouth and to remove all doubt. Right? That's what we think. So we err on the side of not saying anything at all, not opening our mouth, not, not trying to, to do anything because they're afraid they're going to mess things up. I mean, we all can't be John the Baptist people, right? We all can't be that guy. We talked about him in previous weeks. He stood out from the crowd, literally stood out from the crowd, went into the wilderness, wore crazy clothes, camel hair, itchy stuff, ate bugs and honey. I could eat the honey, but not the bugs. And he had a unique calling in his life. But who am I? I'm just an average Joe Schmo, right? I'm a nobody. So how do I do it? I can't be John the Baptist. And, you know, he, like I said, he was a unique guy. So what am I supposed to do? Well, that's what this passage is all about in the book of John. We see clearly how the gospel message and being a follower of Christ is for ordinary people. It's for normal people. And not only that, but ordinary people can take part in sharing the gospel as well. And there's a lot of good stuff in this passage, but I, if I was to do like one sermon summary statement, it would say that like four ordinary men respond to the invitation to come and see Jesus and their lives are changed forever. So that's what we see here is four ordinary people that respond to this message. The message is this, come and see. It's a simple message, three words, and their lives are changed forever. And there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in this passage, but I want to break it down by, first of all, just giving you an introduction, and then two different scenes, and then a conclusion where like, we go over some practical stuff here. 
So that's where we're going to go um, from here. And our passage begins in verse 35, chapter 1, where we left off before with John the Baptist. He's never called John the Baptist, though, in the book of John. So that's why I renamed him John the Witness. Because we learned that John the Witness's main goal in life is to witness or to testify about Jesus. And he says in order to reveal him to Israel and to prepare the way for the Messiah. So that, that's his whole number one job in life. That's his purpose statement in life. And yesterday, John, yesterday in the Bible, not yesterday, Saturday, but yesterday in John's life, in the life of John, he had just said, behold, when he saw Jesus, behold, or look, or look at that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he had just said this, and now we move to the next day, it says in verse 35. He is standing with his own disciples, those people who had come out into the wilderness to hear him preach, to be baptized by John, to wait and get ready. He's out there with them, and it says the next day, he's standing with his disciples, who includes, it says, Andrew and somebody else. Now, we don't know who the somebody else is, but my guess is it's the guy, John, the author of this book. Because the author of this book never says, I am the one writing this book. We can only infer from context clues that this is John the Apostle who's writing the book of John. And I think it's a, it's a pretty good educated guess. So it's Andrew, and I'm guessing an educated guess, that it's John who's standing here with him. And they see Jesus walking by, and John the witness says some, something similar like he said the day before. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Pointing at Jesus, right? Behold, he, Jesus is walking by, they're standing there. Behold, the Lamb of God. And this time, the, the two disciples of John they respond by leaving him, and they literally walk after Jesus. And John, he's okay with this, right? He's just like, see you guys, you know? He lets him go. He says, go, you know? He's fine with people going after Jesus because that's his ministry. That's what he wants to do. He wasn't trying to draw a crowd for himself for the sake of drawing a crowd. He wasn't selling tickets to anything. He didn't have a book publishing deal coming up. He wanted people to maybe come to him so that he could point them to Jesus. And that's a great example for anyone who feels called to serve Jesus. We must always ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? We can never fall into the temptation to think that people are attracted to us as individuals instead of pointing people to Jesus. Even if that means that they're going to have to move away. And that, sometimes that's sad and unfortunate, you know? But we know that What's best for somebody is that they follow Jesus. And that's what they ended up doing. They left and they followed Jesus. So that takes us to scene one here in our scenario in this unfolding week. And to John, the writer, this is the first week that he gives us of Jesus' life after the introduction in verses 1 to 18. Two of John's disciples leave him and they start walking after Jesus. And in verse 38, in verse 38 here, I love it. Jesus turns around, he sees them, and he says, what are you seeking? You know, at some point in everybody's life, they need to ask themselves that question. What are you looking for? What are you seeking? Am I just out here wandering around aimlessly? Do I have a purpose in life? Is life really just about getting money and collecting stuff? Or, you know, is this old saying true that he who dies with the most toys wins? I mean, is that really true? Or is there meaning to life? At this point, what we see here is Andrew, Andrew and John, they, 
they walk after Jesus. He turns around and asks them that really pointed question. The one question that we need to wrestle with is this. What are you seeking? And they wanted answers, and they believed that there was more to learn. They had been learning from John, the witness, but they, they wanted to learn more. And so they tell Jesus, they say, they call him rabbi, which means teacher, even though at this point Jesus wasn't like, a little bit later on in the history of Israel, they were an official designation, like you graduated and became a rabbi or a teacher. But Jesus wasn't officially recognized that this at the time, but they recognized him as a teacher. And they said, rabbi, which means teacher, we want to learn more. And so they asked Jesus if, he, if they could follow him. And right now, they just wanted more information. They acknowledged that they had more to learn. And I love Jesus' answer in verse 39. He says, come and see. Come and you will see. And I like to imagine that Jesus kind of had like maybe a little smile on his face. Like, you want to learn more? Come on. Come and see. And see, during this time, an official, you know, like I said, quote-unquote rabbi, capital R, rabbi with that title, they had a group of disciples or a group of learners that would follow them around all the time. And these learners or disciples would follow their rabbi wherever he went. And they would imitate him Sometimes to the fact that I've, I've read stories that if a rabbi like had a limp, then the disciples would walk with a limp too. If they talked in a certain way, had an accent, they would start having the same accent. They would imitate their teacher, and they would go with him, and they would eat with him, and they would live with him wherever he would, would go. And whenever he would have a teaching engagement, they would have literally a front row seat to whatever he had to speak to them. So it wasn't just taking notes, but it was absorbing his lifestyle. Well, if you wanted to be a student at a, with a rabbi like that, you had to be pretty smart. You had to have a lot of money. You had to be pretty smart. If you remember, Paul, before he became Paul, was called Saul, and he actually grew up in one town. His parents sent him to Jerusalem so that he could learn at the feet of the most famous rabbi, Gamaliel. And he even testifies to that later in the book of Acts. He says, like, I was the number one straight A student, and I got to go, like, what do you call that, boarding school. I got to move from home and go learn at his feet and learn in a different city with this famous rabbi. Well, you know, you look at Andrew, you look at John, you look at these other guys, right? These weren't straight-A students, right? They did not have a free ride to an Ivy League school. And they were following John, the crazy guy out in the wilderness, whenever a rabbi comes up and says, you want to learn more? Come and see. Come with me. And so they got to go be with this teacher. They got to go be with Jesus. And they left John, and they learned from Jesus for the rest of the day. Verse 39, it says that it was about the 10th hour. Now, we think that's probably about 4 p.m. So it's getting kind of late in the day. You know, dinner time is coming up, and then they don't do stuff at night. There's no light bulbs, right? So the day was nearing the end. And I imagine that they didn't go anywhere else that evening. I imagine that they sat with him. They learned from Jesus. And I believe that they were converted through that experience and woke up the next day as brand new people. Because verse 40, it could be interpreted like that it takes place late in the evening, but I lean towards the interpretation that it takes place the next morning. Because Andrew is a different person. He gets up and he goes to find his brother Simon to tell him what he finds. And this is so profound because it reminds me of how we are influenced. I'm persuaded about something. Imagine that you're suffering from a sickness, like um, you know something not major, but like allergies or something. And you might see these TV commercials that pop up or ads on your computer for medicines because somehow Google and Facebook can read your minds, right? 
So all of a sudden it's like, what is all these Allegra commercials coming up for? I don't even know because I'm sneezing and they hear me or something. I don't know. But does it really have a huge impact in your life? Maybe. Maybe um, it, uh, when a, a famous person comes on the TV and says, try this medicine, maybe you're persuaded by that. But what makes a big difference in your life is when your friend says, hey, you know what, Have you, you should try this. It worked for me. And then we're like, oh, okay, you know, I trust him. He's my friend. It works for him. Maybe I'll give it a try. Well, that's kind of like Andrew here. He, he finds the answer, and he goes to share it with his brother. Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. I mean, what an amazing discovery here. He says, found, we found the Messiah. The word found here implies somebody who is diligently searching for something and then joyously discovers it. In Matthew 13, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found. It's the same word. And he reburies it. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. In another parable, we're told of a man who has 100 sheep, but he loses one of them. So he, he leaves the 99 and searches diligently for the one. And then when he finds that same word, when he finds that one, he rejoices over that sheep more than the 99 that didn't get lost. And so with the intensity of a shepherd looking for his lost sheep or the joy of a man discovering a great treasure, Andrew, he, Andrew, he gives Jesus that endorsement and says, we, we found it. We found him. The one we've been searching for. The one we've been looking for. He's here. And so what we see here, consequently, is Andrew becomes this, this guy, the same you know, the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of a friend to a friend or a brother to a brother. You know, Simon didn't respond to John the Witness's ministry, but he responded to his brother's invitation to come and meet Jesus. And I think if we were to talk here in this room, we would find out that we also are probably influenced by somebody that was closest to us, a friend or a neighbor or co-worker or maybe even a brother like Andrew and Simon here. And this is where Jesus, he looks at Simon because Simon goes to him and he goes, Simon uh, approaches Jesus. And verse 42, Jesus looks at him, says, you are Simon, the son of John or son of Jonah, because John and Jonah, kind of like they meant the same name. He said, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. or And Peter uh, Cephas means, Peter means rock. And so these, like I said, they, Peter was a fisherman, we know. Not highly educated people. But Jesus saw something in them that they didn't see in themselves. And he saw what Simon would eventually become, which was a leader. And he named him, renamed him Peter, which means rock. It's kind of the same way that whenever God encounters people in the Bible, not only do they come away changed, a lot of times God gave them a new name. Like Abram, he said, your name is no longer Abram. It's, not, it's going to be Abraham, which means father of many nations. And it didn't happen right away. Just like it didn't happen right away with Simon, it didn't happen right away with Abraham. In fact, he only, you know, it was later, generations later, that there was many generations that came from him. But it ended up happening in the same way Simon becomes Peter, not because of who he is currently, but of who he becomes in Christ. And so we see a pattern here. Uh, this whole scene one, uh, it just gives you this, this broad over this, this picture of how the gospel tends to spread. So look at with me again, like verse 36. You have the proclamation. 
John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Then you have the investigation in verse 38. You have Andrew and John. They, they, they start asking questions. Then you have the invitation. Jesus says, Come on, learn a little bit more with me. And then you have regeneration. Verse 39, they are born again to spiritual life when they encounter Jesus Christ personally. And then you see evangelization taking place whenever Andrew says, Oh, Simon, come and see. Come and see. Come and meet the person here. And then you have the life transformation whenever Simon meets Jesus. And he grows in his faith and he, he, as he walks in the Spirit here. I love this. You see this pattern taking place right here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, of the proclamation of who Jesus is, the investigation, the invitation to come and see. And then you see when somebody meets Jesus, they are transformed. And so the scene changes in verse 43, where it says, now we have the next day. So there's two ways you can look at it. Um, it's either day four or day five here in the life of Jesus. I think it's day five, like I said, because the interpretation of the 10th hour is that that day has ended and that meeting with Simon and Jesus took place the next day. So here we are on day five of this week. And um, we see the first movement on the part of Jesus where it says he's going to go now. He's going to leave um, where he's at in the wilderness, which is east of Jerusalem, and he's going to go to the region of Galilee. That region was around the Sea of Galilee, north of Jerusalem and Judea, and it's the region where Andrew, Peter, and another guy named Nathan was from. And we all assume that they were fishermen because they were all friends. They were all from a fishing village on the east side of the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida. Bethsaida means house of fish. So so I'm guessing that uh, they were fishermen. And a lot of fishing going on in the Sea of Galilee there. But before they leave, Jesus finds another guy named Philip and says, come and, or, um, says, come and see. Precisely, he says, come, follow me. Verse 43. So Philip is convinced, and so like Andrew, he finds his brother Simon. Philip finds Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip calls Jesus the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets, the law and the prophets, testifying that the, all the Hebrew scriptures, they testify that Jesus is the one, that he's the one that this is all pointing to. Later in the gospel, Jesus says the same thing. He says to those people who opposed him, he said, that all of the law and the prophets, they point towards me as being the, the one. And so the Old Testament scriptures, they, they testify that they are really pointing to Jesus Christ. But Nathaniel isn't convinced. Just saying, oh, this guy, he's from the one. He's, he's from the Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's the one. And he's not convinced. Maybe you aren't either. Maybe you think, wait a second. Something's not adding up here, Pastor Eric. I've been, I know Christmas, okay? Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, right? Not in Nazareth. Are you trying to pull a fast one here? I know that's what you're thinking. But that's not the case. I mean, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Then he fled to Egypt with his parents. He was taken to Egypt with his parents. And then they came back later and they settled in Nazareth. I mean, it's kind of like, how would you answer the question, where are you from? You could say, well, I was born here. I was raised here. I live most of my adult life here. I've lived here now for eight years, so it depends on who I'm talking to. You know, I was talking to somebody once who said, you know, how long have you lived here? And I'm like, eight years. Or no, I think it was like seven years at the time. They said, oh, 
I was talking to somebody who was like born and raised in Swissville, and they're like, oh, you're just a tourist, huh? <laughs> I'm like, oh, thanks a lot. I mean, seven years is a long time to live in one place, I think. That's just me, you know. Um, but Jesus could be called from Nazareth. He was considered a Nazarene. But that didn't get him any social credit. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, apparently it was a, a, a nothing burger of a town because Nathaniel said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, just so you know, Nathaniel was from Cana, which isn't that far away. You know, it's from the same region. You know what I mean? It's like you're looking down on them, but really you're not any better. You're from the same region. But apparently, Nazareth was a very small town. And it maybe not had a very good reputation. But his response also showed something interesting that I don't know if you ever noticed before. He, he didn't say, what are you talking about? There's not a person written about in the scriptures. So there was a low-level cultural expectation that there was a Messiah coming, right? They were kind of expecting somebody like this to come on the scene. He wasn't surprised that he was announcing the Messiah was here. He was surprised at where the Messiah came from. And I think that's kind of kind of interesting to think about. Like, he was saying... Are, are you sure he's going to come from Nazareth? Not, are you sure there's going to be somebody here like that? Which helps to explain how John the witness, his role, and how he pointed to Jesus, and how now these disciples are just, you're like, how did they leave and go with Jesus so fast? Like one day, boom, all of a sudden their lives changed. Well, they were kind of expecting and looking for this person to come on the scene, and now they're investigating, they're looking back at Scripture, and he says, yeah, this is the guy. John the witness testifies to him. The, the Holy Spirit, if you believe me, like, my life was changed by that. And he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Nathaniel, or Philip's response, I love it, because what's his response? His response is, come and see. And I wonder if he had that like same sparkle in his eye, you know, that Jesus had. And he used Jesus' words. He had heard that Jesus had said the same thing. He just repeated, oh, well, you don't believe me? Fine. Yeah, that's fine. Come and see. And Nathaniel does, and as, as Nathaniel approaches Jesus, Jesus sees him, kind of like how he saw Simon the day before. Jesus knows Nathaniel's character, and he says, oh, you are like, you are a straight shooter. I, I, know, I know you, you're a straight shooter. And Nathaniel says, what, what are you talking about? Like, you think you know me? How do you know me? You don't know me. And Jesus answered, before you before you saw me and I saw you, I saw you under the fig tree. So maybe this was like a physical location that he had like been hanging out, like doing some private worship under a fig tree someplace. It's also an idiom for being under the blessing of God because the fig tree represented the nation of Israel. Either way, it was a supernatural statement where Jesus said something like spoke to Nathaniel and Nathaniel knew that Jesus knew him. Sometimes God will do that for you where it's like, I know this is just for me. You know, I know, you know, maybe you didn't know it, but when you said something to me, it really got to me. You know, the Holy Spirit just like kept this scripture in my mind all day and the next day, you know, it just dwelled in my heart, it dwelled in my spirit and like it did something in me, you know. I don't know exactly what it is. We don't really know. Maybe we can ask Nathaniel when we get to heaven. But when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, he said, oh my goodness, how? How? I, I don't know how, but I know I've experienced the Holy Spirit in certain ways like that before in my life. 
And Nathaniel is just like, boom, he is convinced and he declares, you are not just Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. You are the son of God. You are the true king of Israel. He makes that declarative statement. And I love Jesus' response. He says, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. You were surprised at that. You just wait. You better buckle up, buddy. Because a life following Jesus is way more than you could ever imagine. He will open your eyes to things that you never thought you could see before. And he will do amazing things in your life that you don't even expect. And when God is working in your life and you let God work through you, you will be blown away by what he does. And maybe you are like me thinking, oh, I couldn't. No, God could never use me. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the education. You know, I'm, I'm too young or I'm too old or I'm from the wrong town. I don't, I've had bad life experiences. I'm a nobody. Well, look at these guys right here. First of all, look at my life. Look at other people's lives. I mean, really, you're discounting the Lord if you think that God can't use you. You really are. And we have this example from Scripture of God taking these people from these nobodies from no places and using them for amazing things and showing us that, first of all, the gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your job is. The gospel is for everyone. Did you notice something here? Did you notice that three times the author takes a word and then puts in parentheses in English, which means and then defines that word? So you see it in verse 2. Rabbi, which means teacher. Verse 41. It says Messiah, which means Christ. Verse 42, Cephas, which means Peter. That's because they, were, they spoke Aramaic. But when he wrote it, he was writing in Greek. So in other words, he was making it understandable for people from different cultures and different backgrounds, reading different languages. So in other words, you didn't have to be an Aramaic speaker in order to understand what he was writing because he was writing in Greek for everybody. So he was making it accessible. So sometimes, like, I love that, just the picture that the gospel isn't just for a small segment of people. It's for everyone. It's good news. And then number two, the only requirement for sharing the good news of the gospel with someone is if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, then you know what it means to follow Christ. That's why you're a Christ follower. And if that's all you know, then you know salvation. You can share that with someone else. You know who God is. God is holy. You know who we are. We are sinful people. You know that God sent a rescuer named Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died a death that we deserve and rose from the grave so that through faith in him, we can be saved. God, man, Christ, response. If that's all you know, you could share that with somebody else. And that's Andrew's first response in verse 41, was to go tell his brother about Jesus. In fact, in the, this book of John, the only time we see Andrew, three times, he's not a popular disciple, the only time we see Andrew is when he's bringing somebody else to Jesus. It's like that's all he's known for, is the guy who's like, uh, come with me. <laughs> uh, come see Jesus, you know what I mean? That's all he does. And that's great. No, that's a great thing to be known for, right? That's a wonderful, wonderful thing that the Andrew is known for, taking a friend to meeting Jesus. And I think that's so encouraging. Just to say, hey, you, you got to see what I see. You got to see what I found out. Number three, Jesus invites people to come and see. 
If you're not a believer, then I encourage you to take Jesus' advice and investigate the claims of Christ. Search it out. Ask questions. Allow people to ask questions. I've heard so many stories of people who are afraid to express their doubts about Christianity. And I want to be like, why? You don't have to have everything figured out. Jesus said, come and see. If you're still learning, if you're asking questions, that's great. Do it. Ask questions. And let people ask questions. This is the place where you can ask difficult questions. I encourage our kids to come up with the most difficult questions, to ask those hard questions, to search out answers. Because Jesus says, come and see. Number four, know this, that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He saw Nathaniel out of the tree. He saw Simon for who he truly was going to become. Jesus knows us better than ourselves. So that is a wonderful encouragement. Jesus accepts us just the way we are, but he loves us so much that he doesn't let us stay where we are. He wants us to become like Jesus. And finally, number five, we get a glimpse of the complete picture of Jesus in this passage. I don't know if you counted them, but there were seven different names used in this passage. The Lamb of God, Rabbi, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, King of Israel, and the Son of Man. In just these few verses here, we learn that what this means is that this fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the Messianic King, the teacher of Israel, and the Son of God who will die for the sins of the world. What an amazing, complete picture here. And finally, the the most significant thing of all here is the revelation of of Jesus' final words in verse 51. And he begins with this emphatic phrase. He says, truly, truly, and I... In the original language, it's amen or amen. So like King James might say verily, verily, or something else like um, for sure, for sure. You know what I mean? Truly, truly, I tell you. And he describes this famous event from Genesis chapter 28 from their past that everybody knows about this event. This is a crazy thing that happened. Jacob, he was, um, he falls asleep and he has a dream of a ladder or a staircase leading to heaven on which angels are going up and down on it. And when he wakes up in Genesis 28, 16 to 17, he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And he set up a pillar and he named the place Bethel, Bethel, but Bethel, which means house of God. Because God was in this place. This is where the presence of God touched the earth, was at Bethel. Now, I love it that what was the name of the village where all these men were from? Bethsaida. So they are going from the house of fish now to the house of God. Because this vision of Jacob described where heaven met earth. And Jesus is now saying that this is the place. That he is the person where God dwells with mankind. And he introduces us, again, secondly, he introduces us to the title that he uses for himself more than any other title, which is son of man. That's how Jesus describes himself, is son of man. And again, this is taken from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision of God, the ancient of days, is seated on the throne. And this vision of Daniel, which I believe, again, was in their consciousness as a culture, as a society, because Jesus kept saying, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of man. He always called himself the son of man because they knew Daniel chapter 7 And it was almost like, you know, they're they're monotheists. They believed in one God, right, Yahweh. But in Daniel chapter 7, it looks like there's a second 
God or a lesser God or younger God because this God approaches God and God Yahweh says, I am the Lord your God and I will not give my glory to another. I will not give it to another. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, he, Ancient of Days, passes his glory to another God that he calls the Son of Man and lifts up that name. And so, right, you know, you think, oh, the Trinity, you know, the Bible never says the word Trinity, right? Well, the threeness of God, the three, the triunity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it was already in the mind, you see it in Genesis 1.1, and it was already in the minds of people from Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus, you know, Jesus is looking back and says, I am the Son of Man, and this is the first time in John where he says, I am the Son of Man, we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is saying, I am this one. I am God in the flesh right here, the place where heaven meets earth, and the place where we can meet God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one. He is the ladder that leads us to the dwelling place of God, and he is the one who invites us to come and see, to behold the glory of the Lamb. Come and worship the true King.